Section 15 of Mrs. Shelley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Shelley by Lucy Maddox Brown Rossetti. Chapter 8, Part 2. Return to England. During this period, Shelley and Mary's chief anxiety was to welcome and care for the little children left by poor Harriet. They had been placed before her death under the care of a clergyman who kept a school in Warwick, the Reverend John Kendall, vicar of Budbrook. Shelley had hoped that his marriage with Mary would remove all difficulty, and Mary was waiting to welcome Ianthe and Charles, but in this matter they were doomed to disappointment. On January 8th a bill was filed in the Court of Chancery on the part of the infants Charles and Ianthe Shelley. John Westbrook, their maternal grandfather, acting on their behalf, praying that they might not be transferred to the care of their father, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who had deserted their mother, who was the author of Queen Mab, and an avowed atheist, who wrote against the institution of marriage, and who had been living unlawfully with a woman whom Eliza Westbrook, as Shelley had written to her, might excusably regard as the cause of her sister's ruin. Shelley filed his answer on the 18th, denying the desertion of his wife, as she and he had separated with mutual consent owing to various causes. He had wished for his children on parting with her, but left them with her at her urgent entreaty. He had given her two hundred pounds to pay her debts, and an allowance of a fifth of his income. As to his theological opinions, he understands that they are abandoned as not applicable to the case. His views on matrimony, he alleged, were only in accordance with the ideas of some of the greatest thinkers that divorce ought to be possible under various conditions. Lord Eldon gave his judgment on March 27, 1817. In fifteen carefully worded paragraphs he showed his reasons for depriving Shelley of his children. He insists through all that it is Shelley's avowed and published opinions, as they affected his conduct in life, which unfitted him to be the guardian of his children. The wording in some passages caused grave anxiety to Shelley and Mary, as shown in their letters, as to whether they would be deprived of their own children and they were prepared to abandon everything, property, country, all, and to escape with the infants. The poem, To William, was written under this misapprehension, although when he left England in 1818, Shelley's chief reason, as given in his letter to Godwin, was on account of his health. Undoubtedly, the judgment, in all the trying circumstances they had been passing through ever since their return from Geneva, helped to decide them in this determination. Charles and Ianthe were finally placed under the care of Dr. and Mrs. Hume, who were to receive two hundred pounds a year, eighty pounds settled on them by Westbrook, and one hundred and twenty pounds to be paid by Shelley for the charge. Shelley might see them twelve times a year in the presence of the Humes, the Westbrooks twelve times alone, and Sir Timothy and his family when they chose. While these proceedings were progressing, Mary with Clare and the two children had moved to Marlow, having previously joined Shelley in London on January 26th, as she feared to leave him in his depressed state alone. The intellectual society they met at Hunt's, and at Godwin's, helped to pass over this trying period. One evening Mary saw together the three poets, Hunt, Shelley, and Keats, Keats not being much drawn towards Shelley, while Hazlitt, who was also present, was unfavorably impressed by his worn and sickly appearance, induced by the terrible anxieties and trials which he had recently passed through. Horace Smith also proved a staunch friend. Shelley once remarked it was odd that the only true generous wealthy person he ever met should be a stockbroker, and that he should write and care for poetry and yet make money. In the midst of her anxieties, Mary Shelley enjoyed more social intercourse and amusement than before. 
we find her noting in her diary in february dining with the hunts and horace smith going to the opera of figaro music etc but now they had found their marlow retreat a house with a garden as mary desired not with a river view but a shady little orchard a kitchen garden yews cypresses and a cedar tree here mary was able to live unsaddened for a time the swiss nurse for the children a cook and a man-servant sufficed for indoor and outdoor work and mary true to her name was able to occupy herself with spiritual and intellectual employment not to the neglect of domestic as the succession of visitors entertained must prove study drawing and her beloved work of frankenstein were making rapid progress nor could mary have been indifferent to the woes of the poor for shelley would scarcely have been so actively benevolent as recorded during the residence at marlow without the cooperation of his wife while shelley inquired into cases of distress and gave written orders for money mary dispensed the latter here godwin paid them his first visit and the hunts passed a pleasant time shelley wrote his revolt of islam under the bishman beeches and mary had the pleasure of welcoming her old friend mr baxter of dundee although his daughter isabel married to mr booth still held aloof peacock horace smith and hogg were also among the guests we find constant references to godwin having been irritated and querulous with mary or shelley a forced unnatural equanimity during one period of his life seems to have resulted in a querulous irritability later a not unusual case and he had to vent it on those who loved and revered him most or in fact on those who would alone endure it from her amiability of disposition a quality not remarkable in his second wife on may fourteenth we find mary has finished and corrected her frankenstein and she decides to go to london and stay with her father while carrying on the negotiations with murray whom she wishes to publish it shelley accompanies mary for a few days at godwin's invitation but returns to look after blue eyes to whom he is charged with a million kisses from mary but mary returns speedily to shelley and blue eyes having felt very restless while absent she soon falls into a plan of shelley's for partially adopting a little polly who frequently spent the day or slept in their house and mary would find time to tell her before she went to bed whatever she or shelley had been reading that day always asking her what she thought of it mary who was expecting another child in the autumn was not long idle after the completion of frankenstein but set to work copying and revising her six weeks tour this work begun in august she completed after the birth of her baby clara on september second in october the book was bought and published by hookham she tells in her notes on this year eighteen seventeen how she felt the illness and sorrows which shelley passed through had widened his intellect and how it was the source of some of his noblest poems but that he had lost his early dreams of changing the world by an idea or at least he no longer expected to see the result a letter from mary to her husband written soon after the birth of her baby shows how anxious she was at that time about his health it had been a positive pain to her to see him languid and ill and she counselled him obtaining the best advice change being recommended by the physician mary has to decide between going to the seaside or italy with all the reasons for and against italy mary asks shelley to let her know distinctly his wish in the matter as she can be well anywhere one strong reason for their going to Italy is that Alba, as Allegra was then called, should join her father. Evidently, the embarrassment was too great to settle how to account for the poor child longer in England, and had not she a just claim upon Byron? 
In another letter, September 28th, Mary speaks of Claire's return to Marlow in a croaking state, everything wrong. Harriet's debt's enormous. She had just been out for her first walk after the birth of Clara, and was surprised to find how much warmer it was out than in. Shelley is commissioned to buy a sealskin fur hat for Willie, and to take care that it is a round, fashionable shape for a boy. She is surrounded by babies while writing. William, Alba, and little Clara. Her love is to be given to Godwin when Mrs. Godwin is not there, as she does not love her. Frankenstein is still undisposed of. The house at Marlow is soon found to be far too cold for a winter residence. Italy or the sea must speedily be settled on. Alba is the great consideration in favor of Italy. Mary feels she will not be safe except with them. Byron is so difficult to fix in any way, and the one hope seems to be to get him to provide for the child. Anxiety for Alba's future ruled their present, so impossible is it to foretell the future, which, read and judged as our past, is easy to be severe upon. This dream of health and rest in Italy was not to be so easily realized. Instead of being there, they were still dispensing charity at Marlowe at the end of December, in spite of various negotiations for money in October and November. Horace Smith had lent two hundred pounds, and Shelley thought would lend more. Mary continued extremely anxious on Alba's account. If she could only be got to her father! Who could tell how he might change his mind if there be much delay? Might he not change his mind, or go to Greece, or to the devil? And then what happens? The lawyer's delays were heavy trials, and they could not go and leave Godwin unprovided for. He was a great anxiety to Mary at this time. It was not till December 7th that Shelley wrote to tell Godwin how he felt bound to go to Italy, as he had been informed that he was in a consumption. Owing to a visit of Mr. Baxter to them at Marlow, when he wrote a most enthusiastic letter about Shelley and Mary to his daughter Isabel Booth, Mary had hoped for a renewal of the friendship, which had afforded her so much pleasure as a girl, and she invited Isabel to accompany them to Italy. But this Mr. Booth would not allow. And, in fact, he appears to have treated his father-in-law, Mr. Baxter, who was six years younger than himself, with much severity, and wished him to stop all intimacy with Shelley. He did not, however, prevent him having a friendly parting with Shelley on March 2nd, although he would not allow his wife to have any communication with Mary, much to their sorrow. Mary was in constant anxiety about Shelley in the last months of 1817, writing of his suffering and the distress she feels in seeing him in such pain and looking so ill. In January 1818, the month before they left Marlow, his sufferings became very great. But two thousand pounds being borrowed on the promise of four thousand five hundred pounds on his father's death, and the house at Marlow being sold on January 25th, we find the packing and flitting taking place soon after. By February 7th, Shelley leaves for London, and on Tuesday 10th, Mary follows. Godwin, as usual now, had been beseeching for money and then, feeling his dignity wounded by the effort, retaliated on the giver with haughtiness and insulting demands. In a biography, unfortunately, characters cannot always be made the consistent beings they frequently become in romances. One more happy month Mary is to pass in England with Shelley. We again have accounts of visits to the opera, to museums, plays, dinners, and pleasant evenings spent with friends. Keats is again met, and Shelley calls on Mr. Baxter, who was not allowed by his son-in-law to say farewell to Mary Shelley. Such a martinet may a Scotch schoolmaster be. Mary Lamb calls, and visits are paid and received till the last evening arrives, when Shelley, exhausted with ill health, fatigue, and excitement, 
fell into one of his profound sleeps on the sofa before some of his friends left the lodgings in great russell street and thus the hunts were unable to exchange with him their farewells this small band of literary friends were all to bid shelley and mary farewell on his last few days in england the contrast is indeed marked between that time and this when shelley societies are found in various parts of the world when enthusiasts write from the most remote regions and form friendships in his name when churches including westminster abbey have rung in praise of his ideal yearnings and when not least some have certainly tried to lead pure unselfish lives in memory of the godlike part of the man in him but he now left his native shores never to return with claire and allegra and his own two little children and certainly a true wife willing to follow him through weal or woe End of chapter 8